take thou authority to preach the gospel. Indeed, I look upon all the world as my parish. Welcome to Phil Preacher's Podcast. I am Beth S. Stock, and today I have the delight to talk with John Helmier. He is the convener of Valley and Mountain Church in Seattle, Washington, actually the south side of Seattle, we could say. Welcome, John. Hey, Beth. It's great to be with you today. It's great to see you in this heat, in the hot heat of the Pacific Northwest. Yep, it's record heat waves here in Seattle right now. Yeah. So um, let's begin just by um, sharing with the folks that are listening a little bit about your context, even when there's not a heat wave going on. Uh, What kind of heat are you getting into there? What's what's the deal? Um, Well, I am in South Seattle, as you said, um, and it's a very uh, post-religious place. Um, So like the vast majority of people just have no um no church literacy or interest for the most part um there's sort of the, uh, the church world is seen i don't i'm just diving right into people's religious identities but thinking about our listeners um I'm sure they're curious uh yeah people are kind of like over it um when it comes to christianity and religion in general um but what they are into is art and nature and music um and finding ways to do community together, um, sharing resources, uh, and also, you know, Amazon and stuff like that. <laughs> we are in Amazonville, so there's a lot of uh, a lot of shopping online and uh, a lot of like talking smack about Amazon and also working for it at the same time. And so, you know, we are in the middle here of a big um, paradox of values, uh, and so the church gets to kind of to help people make sense of that i love the the word paradox of values because i think that seattle if you were going to say something about that whole culture it is a paradox of values and it's interesting to figure out how to navigate as a church leader through that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah totally i mean i was talking to somebody the other day who um uh we are still in kind of uh, COVID caution here in Seattle right now. Um, very few churches are meeting in person at this point, even though most of the country they are, but Seattle's a highly uh, cautious place when it comes to that. Um, anyway, I was, ran into somebody in the park I hadn't seen in church for like a year um, because we're doing Zoom church and she's got a little kid and says, I can't, can't handle it. Um, but I kind of inquired, hey, are you going to come back? Um, we're in person and she's like, oh yeah, I need it. Um, all my friends have Toyota Highlanders and uh, I want one too. <laughs> But I don't want to want one, <laughs> so I need to go to church. <laughs> and this is somebody who's never been to church in her life, no religious history. She's uh, like late 40s and has been coming to church for about five years. Um, she's like, covetousness, it's strong here. So, you know, that's that's real. So tell me a little bit or tell our listeners a little bit about how you got to know your community. because. You're, uh, you started what, eight years ago, nine years ago? 11 years ago, Beth. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> 11 years ago. Okay. You started 11 years ago. How did you, um, you know, get to know your community? I know that the first year you had a business card that said community listener. So can you tell us a little bit about how 
you've gotten to um, kind of live into this paradoxical place? Yeah, yeah. So I had these business cards. Uh, I started trying to come up, come up with some core values um, that would uh, provoke some interest. So this is like right out of the gate um, when I came out here. So it's a parachute drop model of church planting where it's just me as an individual person sent into a neighborhood um, uh, on my own with a uh, five-year kind of stair-step funding package. So like salary and benefits the first year and a little bit of programming money, 80% of that the next year, 60, 40, 20. Um, but uh, uh, anyways, I, I, I tried to come up with some different core values that would spark some like curiosity and interest when I started talking to people because I felt like if I was like, we're about loving God and loving your neighbor. Um, like maybe in some contexts that would be really exciting and work in ours would just be like yawn. <laughs> like, I don't know. Love God, love your neighbor, whatever. That's fine. Um, but it's just, that's the motto of like a hundred churches within, you know, a five mile drive of here. Um, and, and not that we're trying to be better than them. It's just like, we're trying to connect with people who don't go to church. So who are not interested in a motto of love God, love your neighbor. So it came up with some values called deep listening, creative liberation, and radical hospitality. And uh, I started calling myself, like you pointed out, a minister of listening. And I told a friend of mine this, who's like a secular Jew, who made me a business card with this like hand-drawn little guy with his hand to his ear, uh, who looked really kind of funny. And, and, um, and uh, I don't know, it's actually kind of like on trend in terms of the artwork. Um, and she made it as a joke. And I was like, oh, I'm getting this printed. So I just printed a thousand of them. And, uh, uh, and I'm an extrovert. And so I leaned into that. And I just got to know like an incredible number number of people in my neighborhood. So I went out and I went to yoga class and I strike up conversations and I went to pub trivia nights and joined random teams and I was on the joined the running club even though I hate running. Um, but I actually did want to get in shape. So it was like I didn't want to do anything I truly hated just to, to, so it wasn't a total bait and switch. But it was like all right, what are things that I can genuinely make myself do? Um, for me, but also come into contact with as many people as possible um, so that I can uh, really like the first step was just trying to learn what would make sense in this neighborhood and this context and place because I really am not from Seattle. Um, and although most of my friends have been like secular, non Christian people throughout my life, it's still a unique context and I wanted to understand what people cared about. So I wasn't primarily going out to like evangelize in the classic sense of the word to impart truth to them. Um, uh, to give them good news that I had and they didn't. Um, I started by trying to like figure out what is like what is the good news that's already here. Like what do these people know and care about and love um, and what motivates them and what makes their lives meaningful. Because um, I, I do believe that you can have a meaningful life um, without uh, you know believing exactly as I do. So I wanted to understand that so we could be more effective and. Um, kind of build on what was already there in the neighborhood. So yeah, I just kind of met as many people as possible, listened, learned, and occasionally when people, when it came up naturally, um, I'm like, yeah, I'm trying to start this new spiritual community. And here's my business card. And it was kind of a conversation started. So how did you then discern those three core values that, um, that you've just grown deeper with over this, these 11 years? Was it through those conversations? Yeah, it was. Um, the first, actually, in the beginning, I just said two. It was creative liberation and, and uh, deep listening. Um, 
like right out of the gate, it was those two. And that was because uh, I felt like I couldn't plant a church um, unless it really reflected like who I was as an individual. And it's not to say it's like the gospel of me, um, but it was sort of like, uh, I've got to be true to, to my authentic beliefs. Um, and, and those are fairly specific. Um, and so the deep listening represented the um, Christian mystical tradition um, and, and maybe, maybe like the, the perennial mystical tradition. So not even necessarily just Christian. Um, but I would define that as kind of a, a notion of God as more of an experience than God as a fact um, or an idea or a concept or a being even. Um, but God is something that you that you experience and that changes your experience and transforms you. Um, yeah. Again, more so than uh, a distinct creature type of thing um, that, uh, that has like dictates for our lives. Um, so I was trying to lean into the mystical tradition with the deep listening phrase and um, the tradition of liberation theology with the creative liberation term. Um, and so those were kind of the core theological wells from which I drunk and that I was inspired by and I wanted to share that with other people. And so that was the gospel that I, that I had to share. Um, and as I talked to more people, I realized like what so many people were looking for wasn't really theology, <laughs> uh, despite me being a giant nerd about it and like loving it so much. <laughs> and people do care about beliefs. They want to talk about them all that. But like ultimately they were just way more motivated by finding community and acceptance and belonging. Um, and not totally accepting community in terms of like, it's all good, whatever, who cares? Like that lady I told you about earlier, like she wants to be less covetous. <laughs> she wants to be less materialistic. She wants a community to help her live into, our into her values. Um, so, uh, but a non-judgmental one as well. And so that's where the radical hospitality um, value get added on is, is through those conversations and, and realizing how core that was in this place particularly seattle is a very isolated place um the, the pacific northwest is a lot of loneliness and there's a lot of like individualism which is great for me i love that aspect about it here i'm highly individualistic but it's also um you know the shadow side of that is a lack of uh collectivism and connection and um the fact that like you can't exist without others that we are created to be dependent so you know, that was uh, one development that we had in our theological and values tradition. I know for you that these values are not just something that's written on a piece of paper or um, plastered on your website. Mm -hmm. It really has shaped and formed your community mm -hmm. and helped shape and form you as a leader in a very organic way. Can you share a little bit about maybe taking each one of those um, and talking about how that has kind of transformed you and the community as you've lived into those values? Totally. Yeah. So deep listening, um, uh, you know, most people hear that and they primarily think about listening to each other. And that is a big part of what we do. We have you know, small groups and lots of spaces in which um, we encourage non-judgmental uh learner-based listening where we're not listening to critique but we're listening to um to appreciate and like discover something 
Um, and so that is part of it. Like, for example, in our services, it's been less while we've been on kind of COVID Zoom services, but uh, we about once a month do an open mic in place of a sermon. Um, and so uh, me or somebody will introduce the topic and give like a five minute sort of setup, or usually tell a personal story, like make some quick theological connection and then ask a question that invites people to tell their stories. Uh, and so we, we do that regularly and it's phenomenal. Um, it's like, you know, occasionally you have one that's not, that doesn't bring a bunch of people to tears, but usually more than not, often than not, there's a lot of feels in the room on those open mic ones. Um, so we, we do it that way, but, uh, I actually emphasize deep listening as, um, sort of more resonant of our, uh, inward spirituality. Um, aspect of like what it means to be church. So, you know, I do view Jesus as, as many things. And one of them is as a mystic um, who uh, tries to help people um, awaken to the presence of God all around and in themselves and beyond themselves. Um, so deep listening is about attuning ourselves to the calling of the spirit, to the voice of God, to the, um, to the Christ that is everywhere at all times and everything. So this kind of notion of a universal Christ or an incarnational theology or sacramental theology is really core of who we are. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's about that. And so our services are fairly exuberant. Um, we have a lot of like very enthusiastic music and, and things like that. And even though it's, it's still a majority white Seattle congregation that uh, doesn't have the best, swaying rhythm <laughs> uh, freedom of bodily expression we're working on it um there's still a lot of movements and there's a lot of feelings that come up and so we, we try to create a space where people can not just think about god there's a lot of cerebral people in seattle and and so am i as you can probably gather <laughs> the way that i talk um uh but we're trying to get beyond our heads and into our hearts um and so our worship and our um, practices in a community are, are built around that. Uh, and then we go into creative liberation, which is about um, being an activist community. And so this, you know, this won't be the same for everybody who's listening or to, to all church planners in all contexts, but um, we are kind of unapologetically a political uh, church and we think that Jesus had politics and they were not friendly to the empire, the politics that he had. Um, and that, uh, a gospel of, of universal value and worth and dignity of the person and the love of God extended to all um, is subversive to any kind of empire, any kind of system that sets some people up as superior to other people. So, you know, that causes us to take stands against um, racism and militarism and economic injustice um, and homophobia, and transphobia, and, and all these different ways that we, um, are you know, involved politically and not just on cultural issues, but economic ones. And, um, it doesn't always mean we exactly line up with like liberalism, um, but uh, that's not the point isn't to like map onto a political partisan ideology. Um, but uh, we, you know, we're always trying to call that question and, and, and see where we ourselves are complicit in all these things without um, kind of wallowing in guilt either, because I don't think that's, what anybody wants. Um, uh, so, 
that's a big part of who we are. We do a lot of activism in, in our church. Um, it's woven in through the liturgy when we uh, do communion, which we do every Sunday. Um, it's part of our communion story. We talk about um, the, the Jesus who uh, was greeted by the occupied people of the land um, when he uh, marched into Jerusalem. Um, and he was riding a donkey as an act of revolutionary street theater. These are parts of the, the words of the liturgy we say every Sunday. Um, that he was executed as an enemy of the state. Um, and that uh, he turned the tables um, and welcomed in people who were sick and disabled into the temple, which is part of the, the table turning story. Uh, so like we, we have a we have a gospel that calls us to to turn tables and to to do risky things. Um, and uh, and ultimately to think for ourselves. I mean we're not super dogmatic about these ideas. Um, and I think in a lot of movement spaces, social justice movement spaces, particularly in Seattle, there's a lot of doctrine and dogma around it. Um, and we try to be a, a church rather than a social justice club. Um, and so that means like you do get to question things and you do get to struggle with them and you're not exiled for not getting it right. Um, trying to be a community group in grace. And that brings us to the third one, which is radical hospitality. Yes. So radical hospitality is all about not just like I said before, accepting everybody as they are and saying it's all good and groovy. Um, because, you know, this is where I think we we are rooted in Methodism, even though some people are like, is Valley Mountain Methodist? And like, depends on who you ask. I think it is. Um, because uh, there is a striving for, for transformation. There's a striving to live in the rhythms of grace more and more and more. Um, and, I, and so that's, you know, sanctification is our word for that, right, in Methodism. Um, and we're a community that tries to practice that. So radical hospitality isn't kind of a, um, an erasure of, uh, of kind of taking stands, um, which I think a lot of the liberal church is rightly accused of, uh, to sort of just say, like, it's all good, it's all gritty, whatever. Um, you're loved, and that's the end of the story. Uh, we do think you're loved, um, and you can do a little bit better. So uh, there is room for both of those things. It's not necessarily for us to judge each other around that. Um, and that's where the radical hospitality comes in and, and trying to make room for lots of different people. So it is a, it is a pretty accepting church. Um, we have, uh, you know, there's a Bible study right now that's, that's being led by um, a, a young uh, trans person. Um, and they're talking about the Gospel of Mark and Janelle Monet's Dirty Computer, which is this kind of album and music. I should say a set of music videos that is um, very kind of challenging to norms around sexuality and gender and, uh, and all this. And they're intersecting these two things and, and really trying to, to understand where they speak to each other. So, you know, um, we're making a lot of space for people. Our whole month long series has been about um, uh, listening to LGBTQ voices in our community. And so they've been front and center every Sunday um, and sharing their perspectives and their stories. And it's been a beautiful month there. Um, I have a feeling that you have a lot of beautiful months as you say that you center people, people's yeah. stories, people's voices. And, you know, it's kind of a, a mashup of all of your three core values when you do that. So can you share a little bit about how you have really um, fallen into grown, shaped and formed beloved community in a way that uh, when you enter into your space, 
um, there's a feeling of, wow, this is the realm of God here. Mm. It's sacred. It's holy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, that's a cool question. Um, people do have a feel like lots of people come into the space and they, they, they feel that there's something there. And uh, there's lots of things we do to, to help it get there. But like the biggest thing is, is a mystery. Like the real reason it happens, there, there's, there's just some, there's some magic to it. There's, um, you know, those the Holy Spirit. Uh, and I'm not trying to, like, I get annoyed when pastors just throw that stuff out there. Um, God, I know, whatever. Um, Jesus, like, let's have a deeper answer than that. Uh, and I don't mean it in a, in a avoidant way or some kind of forced, um, some kind of forced way. But there's, there's something sacred that is beyond what we are trying to do um that comes up and that lots of people end up feeling uh and i'm sure many many listeners can relate to that you know just somebody comes into the room and they they, they feel like there's they're in a separate kind of place and they can let their guard down and they can let their tears out and they can um yeah, let their voice out uh, for once so um i know that's not a helpful answer <laughs> It's like, it's a mystery. Uh, so let me see. How can we um, build on that? Um, you know, one thing is uh, we write from the beginning, try to tell people, like, some of the first words out of anybody's mouth are, um, welcome to Valiant Mountain, celebration. Like, you are you are truly welcome here in your fullest self. And we say, it's not a script, but it's the basic idea every Sunday of, like whether you are on the mountaintop and you're full of joy and love and delight and faith and excitement, like you're welcome here and you can be happy and skipping around and just fully alive. And if you're in the valley bottom and like life seems totally despairing to you and gray and empty and you, it was like a struggle to get yourself out of bed and be here and you are carrying invisible burdens you are ashamed of and you're angry about anything, you can actually be that here too. You can be grumpy and sad and, and lonely and doubtful, um, and that's okay. Um, so you get to be yourself in this place, and you don't have to believe anything to be here. Like you don't have to believe in God <laughs> to be in the room uh, and to fully participate. And and for us to say that you belong, um, we're just glad that you're here, and uh, and we really try to mean that. Um, and I think that's a big thing. So like in some spaces I've been in, they're like, that ah, doesn't really matter, but like you can tell it does. Mm-hmm that um it's like it doesn't matter because you know we want to convert you and we're trying to say it like it doesn't matter because um like we're all we're all lost here at some level anyway like nobody has it figured out um the, the pastors don't have it figured out the denomination god knows doesn't have it figured out <laughs> uh the you know Nobody's got it all figured out. So we're just, um, I forget who said it, but like just one beggar showing another beggar where to find some bread. So there's this sense that there's, um, you're holding both this sense of the beauty Mm -hmm. of, uh, of this, the spiritual being having a human experience Mm -hmm. and the brokenness of the human experience. And somehow you as a convener mm-hmm. are able to create this space where all of that can come out and play. 
So can you tell us a little bit about your role as a convener, why you chose that word and what that means to you and how that plays out? Yeah, totally. Thank you. Um, yeah, I usually don't use the word pastor to describe myself as a convener. Um, and that first year I did the minister of listening thing and that, that was fun too. But uh, convener uh, comes from, you know, gathering people together like a convention, um, a gathering of minds and hearts and bodies uh, for something to happen. Um, so I view myself more as, as that. I think some church planners use the term curator um, and it's probably fairly similar. Uh, and I've definitely leaned more and more into a curator role in terms of our um, services. Like in the beginning of Valley Mountain, so, you know, it's 11 years old, so it's been a lot of Lot of stuff, and I've been there the whole time. Um, the uh, I was by far the main person speaking, um, and over the last number of years, um, I mean, I haven't had, I haven't given a sermon since like I don't know Pentecost, maybe maybe Easter. <laughs> uh, that's a while now. This is we're, we're in June, you know, so end of June. Um, so yeah, we just hear from lots of different people. Um, and there's all sorts of points at the service when I talk, um, and I, I get to kind of move things along and I usually give a preamble to communion and that's a space where I can kind of have a, have a word and try to connect whatever has happened that day. And sometimes it's, sometimes it's pretty off the wall. What, what happens? <laughs> Cause we let all sorts of people have the mic, um, not just open mics, but a lot of congregation members are given their first talk, the reflection, sermon, whatever you want to call it. And, uh, you know, you never know what you're going to get with some of that. Um, and I don't vet it. I mean, we talk, we have conversations, I try to guide them. But, like, it's their voice. It's their time. And they can say what they need to say. Um, we have some guidelines and whatever, but it's not theologically um, um, litmus tested, you know. But that's a chance where I can kind of have some some words to help reconnect the theme, whatever, whatever themes I can draw out of it, um, to grace, uh, because that is, you know, the core of who we are, um, and the sacrament of communion, I, I believe. So, yeah, there's just a lot of space for that, um, uh, for, for, for other people to talk and to, to have their gifts shine through. Um, we do struggle, you know, I don't want to make it all totally sound so, um, idyllic. Uh, we struggle in a less authoritative church structure to really get people into leadership roles. It's um, sometimes I, I'm like, maybe it's sort of an inverse relationship almost like when there's a strong hierarchy in the church, you can really get people into leadership and like, okay, now you're the boss of this committee and you're the thing here. And what we end up having is a bunch of people like on a team who are like, nobody wants to be in charge because we're not like a in charge kind of church. And it's this postmodern, you know, Nobody's supposed to be in charge of each other. Um, and as, as you and I talked about for years, Beth, Beth here was my church planning coach for many years. Uh, and I'm so grateful for that. We wouldn't be here, I'm sure, without you, Beth. Um, and uh, I, I just learned so much from you. Um, we, uh, uh, you know, as you've taught me that there is that, there is that postmodern sensibility of um, anti-authority and while I'm a very anti-authoritarian person by like um, instinct, <laughs> I've never liked to be told to do. Uh, you've got to have some structure in order to make something function. People have to have responsibilities. There's a big difference between 
bossing people around and holding people accountable to responsibilities that they have signed up for and consensually agreed to do. And we struggle with that. Um, some of that's my personality of not wanting to uh, push people around and, um, and, and being like very compassionate to a fault. Like, well, I'm, you know, you're going through a lot and I understand you can follow through. Um, and some of that is, you know, our culture and, and, and we do struggle with that. So, um, I love it. I wouldn't have it any other way. And there are shadow sides, um, to the convener situation. Well, let's then move on because, uh, you know, you're kind of pointing to, um, another phrase that I wanted to play with, with you. And this is this, um, do you call it the community of gardeners? Uh, the, um, the board of gardeners, the board of gardeners. So I just tell us about the board of gardeners. It's basically like our vision and values team. Um, so these are people, uh, uh, kind of elected by the congregation. Um, this is, these are not competitive, uh, school president races, you know, but it's kind of people who are, who are visionaries in the church, um, who, who talk with and uh, nominate. And then they, they're elected to sort of serve as the representative of the church, the people of the church, um, to, to help guide the vision and values. Um, and you know, in church planting, there's a lot that rests on the pastor. And then if you grow some, then on the staff, there's a lot that rests on you. Because unlike traditional um, churches, you just don't have these committees and these stalwarts who've been there for two decades and they just do the same thing. So I, I do think it's it's a reality that most of these church plants, there's a lot on, on the staff. Um, and people aren't that bought in. It takes years for people to develop an, uh, a deep, deep connection in the way that some churches, you know, my grandmother sat in that pew. Like, that's something that we don't have, you know, and I'm sure the, the planters out there hearing this get that and it's nice in some ways because you don't have people being like you can't you move the pew uh that's when grandma's up. but on the other hand like people are like i might come next monday sunday or maybe you'll never see me again <laughs> everybody in the room you know <laughs> and that, that's a tough place to be and so uh, i mean here i am 11 years later we are not in that place anymore thank god it was so stressful and i just i i I want to give a shout out to, to the folks here in this who, who have that experience of just feeling like, are they all going to go away tomorrow? <laughs> Is anybody going to come this Sunday? Oh, it's so much pressure and so, um, so much uncertainty and it's, it's tough. Um, but there is hope. Uh, we, we are now at a place where, you know, people are really regular and committed and underbought. Um, but, uh, the community of gardeners is basically that it's people that represent the, the church um, in vision and values based decision making. I just love the the metaphor of a gardener. You know, when you're talking about leadership and um, a gardener tends and nurtures. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's basically like a board of directors, but instead of like directing the play, uh, yeah, we wanted to say we're gardening the 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 garden. You know, the fat pretend that we're stewarding the land um, and the ecology that is a church. Yeah. When you think about, okay, 11 years, you've gone through a, a lot. Um, what right now are your cutting edge kinds of questions that you have or what you are um, bumping up against right now? Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, me personally or the church? Either one, you as a leader or the church. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, you know, one thing is, uh, and I think lots of people in in this cultural context in which we sit here in, in South Seattle uh, feel this, and it may be resonant or, or not to people in other contexts. But, um, you know, like I said, we're an activist church. We believe in trying to make the world a, a different, a better, more just, more equitable, more loving, graceful place. And it is hard to figure out really how to do that. <laughs> um, and so people struggle with the idea of like, oh, how can I use this little power that I have, this small voice that I have, this little bit of money that I have, this small amount of, of free time that I have uh, that's not taken up with work and family um, responsibilities and, you know, just whatever stuff takes up your life. Like with this little bit of, juice that I have? How can I add it to make the world a better place? And it can feel really um, futile is the, is the reality. Like we're up against um, an impossibly complex set of systems yes. that nobody can really fully understand. And to do any activism, you have to kind of like hone in and say, this is a problem. But as soon as you get serious about it, you realize, well, that's only a problem because this is a problem. And that's only a problem because this is a problem. And all is just like, there's no center. There's no kind of like one thing that the issue is. Um, even if it's like capitalism or something, which is this incredibly vast, complex uh, economic system. Well, there's other authorities. You know, there's other exploitative economic systems in the world that are also problematic. So it's not just this one and everything else is groovy. Um, there is, uh, so it's, it gets frustrating um, and you can feel confused and that there's, you don't have the answers and you can't do anything about it anyway. Um, and so we as a church are really, really trying to figure out, um, like, what's the wisdom from our tradition to guide us in this? And... Um, Howard Thurman is uh, what my colleague Raven Seku, um, who works with us at Valley Mountain now, uh, calls our patron saint at Valley Mountain. Um, so Howard Thurman is the spiritual mentor to Martin Luther King and many others. He um, wrote a book called Jesus and the Disinherited, which I give to all staff and interns and church leaders. Um, and we've done book studies at it several times in my church and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so Howard Thurman's Jesus and the Disinherited, highly recommend it. Um, but, you know, in that, uh, Thurman sort of troubles the idea that the point of Christianity is to, like, is to sort of enact charity on the world um, or even enact justice on the world um, because he's looking at the life of, of Jesus, who is a, you know, ethnic minority, a religious minority, living under the, the boot of a vast empire, um, and he relates that to the experience of a black man in America in his time, which was the first half of the 20th century. Um, and, and I think we could continue on into the current realities that, that we're in now. Not um, Some things have changed and some things are not. Um, but uh, uh, Thurman says that part of the work of Jesus is to help people find um, meaningful lives in the midst of this chaos and struggle. And part of that meaning is to do your best to make the world a better place. I mean, he was the, the guide to many of these civil rights leaders. He wasn't saying just go pray in church and 
just try to be a nicer person. Um, his theology manifested in a great deal of work on social change. But the goal wasn't to like enact X or Y or Z policy. Um, ultimately, the goal was like finding a way to flourish um, and live in your fullness and live in your divine calling um, in the midst of, of a system that you probably aren't going to win against. Um, Christianity is not all about winning. Uh, that's the American civic gospel is about winning. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have to lose your life in order to find it. Uh, I think I read somewhere once, and um, that is that is that is a radical message that I, I think we that we, we try to live into, and that I think can really change people's lives. So, but still, we're struggling with what does that look like? That you know, how do we be a church that really contributes to change, and how does the activism that we do not even reinforce? the the systems that already exist so there's a thinker called um named bio akomalafe um who is this brilliant philosopher and public intellectual we had him speak at church a little while ago um and uh he talks a lot about like post-activism in a world that um that, like activism sort of in some ways relies on uh the system to have a certain kind of conscience and a certain kind of response um that maybe gives things too much credit and doesn't cause people to question enough the, the world that we live in says, well, if you're an activist, then you're okay. If you mark for Black Lives Matter, then you're doing your duty. And that's all you need to worry about. And not like ask some deeper, harder questions that are both more personal and more universal at the same time. So, you know, we never want to get complacent and think that we're some, we don't want to be this self-righteous, um, radical gospel people. Uh, you know, the, the Bible is pretty strong against self-righteousness, and um, we're trying Man, to I see figure out how to, how to be good and be strong in a world where we also have that temptation. I see you holding all of this as a both and, mm-hmm. you know, holding the tension as a convener. And my curiosity in all that um, is again, in the context in which we find ourselves right now in the United States, in the world, in the Pacific Northwest, Mm -hmm. um, and um, all the isms bubbling forward, how do you uh, welcome all theology, all perspective, all persuasions, Mm -hmm. all histories, cultures in this beloved community of Valley and Mountain. How, where does the rubber hit the road there? That's good. Yeah. Um, uh, I like you kind of poking in on that because there's a lot of churches and, and, and I may have been sort of giving this impression too that we're open to all people and everybody's welcome and everybody's happy. That's not the case. Um, uh, and I don't think it's realistic to be a church that can connect with all people it's just there's too many nuances to culture and identity and life story that um i can't really well be well addressed in in every context um so i think what we try to do is like figure out where our competencies lie and who we can connect with in a way that is um beneficial uh and 
acknowledge and lament the, the areas in which we're not capable of doing that very well. Um, and, and hopefully, you know, some of that changes, but not every time we identify a gap, so we must fix it right away. Um, you know, there are a lot of um, folks from Vietnam who live in uh, our neighborhood um, and speak Vietnamese and are first generation immigrants and stuff like that. And we don't have uh, very many Vietnamese people in our community and might say, oh, well, we should be a 25% Vietnamese church because 25% of the neighborhood is Vietnamese. But like, I don't know anything about Vietnamese culture and language and stories and histories. And I could, you know, invest myself in that and spend a great deal of time and energy doing that. Um, uh, but I can't do that for every single as, you know, demographic in the neighborhood. And you've got to sort of be realistic about some of that. So we did a series um, in May, because uh, it was Asian Pacific Islander Heritage Month, that um, focused on uh, the story of Asian Americans and our community and and in Seattle, which is a, a city with, with a lot of people of Asian, Hawaiian, Pacific Islander, Desi percent. Um, and, uh, uh, and so that was great. And, and we've started doing that and made that kind of a regular part of our practice because we do have like a critical mass of people who identify, um, as AHPIDA, uh, in our community. Um, so, you know, we're, we're trying to acknowledge that and we kind of ran it by those folks in the community. Said some people have asked for this and, and you think it would be good. And everybody was like, oh yeah, it's good. We should do a month on that and we should make it a thing that happens every year um, because one month isn't going to do it. And also it feels somewhat marginalizing to be Asian of Asian descent in a community that's predominantly white, which is Valley Mountains reality. Um, so just by virtue of like looking around the room, it can feel a little alien. Not everybody has that universal experience. People do. Um, and so hearing from each other all month long and kind of ministering to each other from a culturally competent place um, was really powerful to a lot of people and beneficial to the whole church. Um, so, you know, we're trying to, to do that and, and also not have like every month be like identity month and, um, totally live into this kind of like, all we are is a set of boxes either. Um, but it's also false to, to imagine that we can somehow transcend that without taking it seriously first. There is this sense, and you've you've, you've uh, kind of spoken to it, that, that um, when I think about you, John, and I think about how you show up as a leader, there's this sense of giving it away, hmm. this canonic witness hmm. of losing oneself to find oneself, yeah. of giving away power to be empowered, um, of decentering and centering other. Um, can you speak to that at all? Yeah. Um, I mean, sometimes it's like too much. I'm just like, all right, you're willing to lead this thing. Here you go. Here's the keys. <laughs> uh, so it's, I, I can go too far in that direction. Um, but I think by and large, most people um, who have uh, worked with me or for me uh, have found that that is my style. It's very um, not micromanager at all. Uh, trust people and I expect something of them. Um, but 
uh, I mean, the ego is just this huge part of church planting. And I think we need to be talking about that. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I don't think that's why hopefully most of us get into it to like, to expand our public profile or something like that. But um, at the very minimum, uh, there's a sense that like, this is something that I'm trying to do and its success is linked to my worth, my sense of worth and my identity. And that's just like a real thing. And feeling we have that to different varying degrees based on a lot of different factors. But um, uh, I, you know, it's a hard thing. I, I remember um, some years into this, just, I was reading this uh, this meditation kind of devotional thing from Anthony DeMello, who's a Jesuit from India. Um, and it's a very kind of non-attachment-based view of Christianity. So he's highly influenced by Buddhist and uh, Hindu thought. Um, but he's a you know, deeply Christian Jesuit priest. Um, and he was like, write down a list of all the things uh, that you have that make you happy. And I like, wrote this list in my head, I don't think I actually wrote that. Um, and he's like, now write the things that you think you would need to be like fully happy. Cause are you happy right now? And I'm like, no, I'm not happy. And then he's like, what, what would you need to be happy? And in my head, I was like, I would need my church to be successful, you know, <laughs> financially solvent and have like 250 people. In. <laughs> uh, that's what I would need to be happy. And then I would be happy because then I would not be stressed anymore that the church is going to fail. Um, uh, and then therefore I will fail and then I'll feel bad about myself. Um, and think I tried to do a thing and I couldn't. And what does that mean about me? Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I was like, that's what would make me happy. And then I don't remember any more instructions to the thing, but it was just like <laughs> for a while. And I was like, oh man, this sucks. I know what this is about. You know, the fuck you, Anthony DeMello. <laughs> but you know uh like i I see what you're doing to me man um and i realized that like if i would if if that had happened like then he was like i think he did say and now imagine that that happened how do you feel and i like felt good for a second and then i started thinking about all the other things that i would need to make me happy and it would have to be bigger and it have to be more radical and it would have to be you know not just a church with butts and seats and dollars in the plate but like the best kind of church that i could ever dream of and I'm never going to get there. Um, and it was kind of a, and I realized all the things in my life that were so beautiful um, and how I was missing out on that because I was focused on the one thing I didn't have. And this is very basic spirituality in one sense, but it's, it's a, it's an endless struggle for, for like virtually all people that I know. Um, and so it just kind of brought me back to that. And I realized how strong, I let my ego get involved in this. And I, I prayed a prayer of like, God, just help me, help me to give up needing this to work. Um, and let me just do what I think I'm supposed to do. And whatever happens, happens. And I'm going to try to like sense the fact that I'm loved either way. Um, just remind me of that. And I felt like a huge burden to part. And that, and I've always remembered that moment. It was probably like three years in or something like that. Mm-hmm. I don't remember exactly when, uh, but it took a long time to get to that place of, of 
of feeling like I'm going to be okay if this doesn't take. Um, and I still have to remind myself of that because we're in a much stronger place now, but, um, but things shift and they change and nothing's meant to be permanent. This denomination shouldn't last forever. No, no individual church should last forever. Each of us is going to die someday, you know? Uh, and that's okay. It's Which okay. probably brings us back around to Howard Thurman all over again. There you go. Yep. Yep. Totally. Yeah. Oh, John, it has been so delightful to, um, to listen in today with you on what's happening in, in your community and with you as a leader. There's so much more territory we could have covered, but I'm going to kind of wrap it in a bow right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but as we leave, I would love for you to give a blessing mm -hmm. to other church leaders um, from uh, your neck of the woods in the Pacific Northwest. Absolutely. Well, um, my fellow church planters and church planter adjacent people, um, my prayer for you is that you might let your authentic voice uh, be heard, that you would be free from the need to please other people, free from the need to produce some measure of success, free from the ego uh, that drives our work all too often, and that in that gap place, the love of God and the grace of Christ come flowing through and set you free and give you joy and reinstill delight and liberation in this world. Amen. Thank you, John Helton. Field Preachers Podcast has been a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Visit all our podcasts at podcasts.umcdiscipleship.org.